Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining me now is Nicholas Myers, a postgraduate researcher at the University of Glasgow, where he is earning his PhD. He's also a senior fellow at the Strategy and Future Think Tank in Warsaw and is uh, one of a new generation of highly talented analysts on uh, the Russian military. Nicholas, thanks very much. I know that uh, you've been doing an extraordinary job piecing all of this together. Uh, obviously, uh, official sources of information, right? I mean, the Russians have been curtailing what they're releasing. And indeed, uh, groups like Anonymous have been taking down what have been regarded as Russian propaganda. That includes Krasnya Zvezda, Red Star, uh, which is uh, the uh, Russian military's sort of official internal uh, publication. Um, which which is always full of interesting information if you're willing to read it. Um, you've been piecing together what the Russians have been doing, how it is they've been doing it. Uh, and obviously this campaign is now entering a different phase, 40 mile long uh, convoy uh, of troops uh, that are heading toward Kiev. Uh, Kharkiv has been uh, surrounded. Uh, and obviously the Russians, after having been regarded in the first 130 some odd hours of this campaign as somewhat incompetent, uh, look like they're hitting the throttles um, to um, you know, increase bombardment of, of cities uh, and obviously seize uh, seize more territory in the face of what has been nothing short of heroic Ukrainian uh, resistance. Talk to us about what you're gleaning because this campaign is in multiple phases. You know, sort of like what's happened. Let's first talk about what it is we saw uh, that you thought were particularly interesting in the early phase, and then in a minute we can discuss about where it is you know, we are and where we're going, because obviously Russians more successful in the South, for example, uh, than they've been in the North. Sort of walk us through what the Russian plan was, what their expectation was, and what's the reality that's actually met them, because it appears that they thought this was gonna go a lot easier than it's ended up going. Oh, thanks, Vago. Uh, yeah, so piecing together the information from uh, Ukrainian social media sources, uh, uh, primarily because some access to Russian propaganda has been curtailed by uh, online patriotic activists. Um, what we can see is that the, this has gone in at least three different phases in terms of the Russian tactical approach about how to attack Ukraine. The first 24 hours represents effectively the first phase in which it seems that the Russians thought that simply by rushing over the border with maximum speed, as opposed to ensuring survivability of logistics, they would be able to cause rapid collapse to the enemy forces. Uh, the fact that the Ukrainians managed to hold the line basically everywhere, in some places quite near the border, I think rather shocked them. In fact, the only one of the nine fronts where the Russians managed to break out during the speed phase was towards Novokakhova in order to regain control of the uh, water sluices that, uh, that would uh, end the Crimean droughts. So where does that put where we are right now, right? The Russians sending a lot more logistical support in there and look like they're um, uh, massing more forces. We've seen everything from uh, thermobaric to other weapons that have been heading in there. Uh, we know that there have been longer, bigger, uh, more powerful projectiles. Uh, something hit the central administrative building, uh, reports uh, show in Kharkiv. What's the next stage uh, that we're going into? What is it that the Russians are telegraphing about what they're going to do next? Well, the key difficulty that they're running into right at this minute is that because they emphasized trying to rebuild uh, supply lines to the places that they did succeed in, in capturing in the first 48 hours or so, they don't have their traditional rail line connections that allow them to continue to project force. Uh, so especially in the area northwest of Kyiv, there's no rail in that area, no small part because it's been impossible to develop it 
uh, since the Chernobyl disaster. And the most the next line going between Ukraine and Belarus to the west is still some kilometers further west from where the extent of that front is. And so that's why we're seeing these fairly long supply truck lines that are quite easy pickings for some of the capabilities the Ukrainians have, such as the Bayraktar UAV, which is definitely coming in more use than I think a lot of analysts, including myself, thought it would be in a high-tech war with the Russians. Um, and elsewhere, Basically, the only place where they've been able to follow along that classic rail line link is the Sumi front, where the Russians have been making pretty strident advances running well ahead of their supply lines. In some cases, running out of fuel, we are even seeing videos of Russians having to walk back from abandoned equipment uh, as they're being harassed by locals because of a combination of uh, civilians being quite unhappy and throwing firebombs at tanks driving down. And just the fact that uh, they not they've not brought up the supply that they thought that was necessary at the beginning against such a prolonged uh, attack, especially one in which UAVs are able to disrupt the uh, fuel trucks coming in from the rear. And let me ask you uh, about that, right? Because the impression that we had is Russians have formidable triple digit air defenses. Uh, they're going to uh, achieve air supremacy. And yet we're seeing Ukrainian aircraft flying indeed. And as you said, uh, Turkey produces a very, very good attack UAV in the form of Bayraktar, which they're using. What is the degree of air capability the Ukrainians are using, and why is it that the Russians have not established air supremacy yet over the country? I'd be remiss to say, to not mention that the Russians claim that they have established air supremacy, which just shows the length to which some of the disinformation uh, the Russians are saying. But you're right that Ukrainian MiG-29s are have plenty of videos of them holding out against Su-35s flying over Kyiv, which is certainly not what many were expecting uh, prior to this conflict. There's a couple of surprises going on here. Uh, perhaps the most important one is that a large subsection of the Russian armed forces that were built up around Western Russia and the territory of Belarus, from which a lot of the air wars being launched, are not actually participating so far. A lot of them are staying at their home air bases which suggests that the Russians are still fairly concerned about the possibility of NATO horizontal escalation. Even if they don't think it's likely to come, they do think it's a substantial, sub sufficiently substantial a risk that uh, they can continue to make Ukraine almost a sideshow of what their uh, capabilities masked are actually supposed to do. And among other things, we've seen uh, reports of Omon and SOBR Rusgvardia troops operating at the front line, in addition to conscripts, which is certainly not what we were initially expecting, since this was supposed to be a large battalion tactical group full of uh, Kontrakniki soldiers at the front line for the entire time. So we've seen some surprises, and I think a lot of it is simply condescension towards what Ukrainian capabilities were supposed to be. Even if not all of the MiG-29s could be suppressed, what, what would they actually have to fear from the pilots out there? And the answer is, there's at least one Ukrainian pilot out there, the Ghost of Kiev, I'm unfortunately forgetting the Ukrainian name for it now, who's supposedly taken down at least six Russian aircraft and probably more by the time uh, you hear this. So putting these uh, claims aside, the unmanned capability, right? Talk to us about the combination of Western arms and how the Ukrainians have been using it as best as we can tell, uh, because NLAW is a formidable uh, system, obviously by Saab, uh, provided by the United Kingdom. The United States has provided Javelin, which is an extraordinary powerful weapon. Uh, and then obviously Turkey has been supplying Ukraine uh, as well. You mentioned Bayraktar, but the Turks are also very, very good at, at precise um, and very, very powerful munitions as well. 
what what is in the kit bag that the Ukrainians uh, are using, because there is a sense by some that however ominous this convoy looks, it is also roadbound, which means that it is, you know, especially once they start to get into urban areas, starts to get very problematic because the Russians are not going to be able to use force the way they would like to use force, right? I mean, they're now intermingled and get caught in a lot of traps. I mean, every street, and then once you blow up vehicles, right, that street is closed to you, uh, and then it becomes a killing zone. What what are the capabilities uh, that the Ukrainians are are leveraging here uh, that actually holds them in in may hold may hold them in 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 good stead? Because I have a, a follow up on how the Russians will respond to this, uh, of course. So yes, you, you probably remember that in the 2014 war, the uh, Ukrainians were somewhat unhappy with the fact that their Soviet-era anti-tank weapons were almost, in their words, bouncing off enemy tanks because of the vast improvements to uh, Russian active armor that had occurred for the past 25 years to that point. Now we're seeing a sort of chimera of anti-tank weapons uh, coming into the fore for how the Ukrainians are resisting. Especially in the early days, there were lots of reports of javelins taking out uh, Russian armored columns moving through the countryside of Ukraine. Again, part of the emphasis that the Russians had at the beginning of speed, which meant that they were quite exposed. So in some cases, they were taking out somewhere about 10 tanks at one particular moment if they, got, if they were in the correct position at the right time. Uh, also possible through UAV strikes as well, which we heard quite a lot about, especially in the first 48 hours of the war. These days, we are seeing a lot more of the in-laws uh, on the front line of people, of what the Ukrainian soldiers sending pictures back are, are toting about. And those have also proven effective at making sure that some of the most heroic battles that the Ukrainians have managed to maintain, especially the Battle of Chernigov, where it appears the first armored brigade of Ukraine was... To be fair, the best brigade that the Ukrainians had is single-handedly holding back at least three fronts. They may now be surrounded as of today, uh, but have been able to hold out this entire time despite being in active engagement with the enemies since day one of this conflict. But they've also been reporting plenty of use of in-laws in order to stop the movement of uh, Russian forces as they're approaching the main uh, infrastructure nodes inside the city itself. Uh, the difficulty that's emerging, however, is that most Soviet, most Ukrainian heavy equipment is still Soviet, and we do not have as many of those munitions in sufficient quantity that NATO can donate. I know a variety of former Warsaw Pact nations are handing over, especially artillery shells, which are quite useful. But I think the ammunition shortages for the old Soviet equipment is ultimately going to be a substantially greater danger to the sustainment of Ukrainian resistance uh, than the ability to keep shoving more javelins and in-laws into the country, which so far has at least proven uh, rather successful, I would say. I want to get to that uh, in just a moment, but a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. Um, to, to the point of the challenges now the Ukrainians face, right? Everybody uh, is... Um, Promising more systems, more weapons, uh, and yet it looks like, um, you know, obviously you've got to get it to where the fighters are. Ukraine is a large country. It's the size of Texas. Um, how, you know, and, and, the, and the Russians are going to target flows of these supplies. And as we know, when it comes to urban warfare, if you surround a big city, 
the Russians are very good at strangling big cities. Um, you know, they they are not above bombing the hospitals, taking out the power, taking out the water. Um, and, and I think uh, there's a sense that that's how this plays out. How does this play out going forward and how are Russians adjusting their tactics? Because again, we're starting to see cluster munitions being used. Uh, and and um, you know, the concern is, you know, as the expression goes, go full Grozny, um, that was a bloodbath. And it doesn't right. appear that the Russians, having not shown any restraint in Syria uh, or any place else they've ever been engaged, will show any more mercy uh, in, in Ukraine. How is this gonna play out? It does appear that as the Russians have gotten used to the fact that Ukrainians are fighting back, they're becoming more comfortable with just relaxing into the Aleppo model, which is going to be extremely catastrophic. So we saw at the beginning that the Russian primary objective in Kyiv was the Hostomel airport 15 kilometers northwest of the city, which they took, the Ukrainians took back, but then the Russians took back again. This is important not only as an airfield that the uh, Russian airborne troops can use to move things in rapidly, but also cuts off one of the main rail accesses of Kyiv to the west. Uh, the second point that the Russians were prioritizing is, of course, Vezilk uh, uh, to the southwest, which they have still not succeeded in capturing, but they have succeeded in suppressing, which again is the second rail line out of Kyiv going west. And then whenever they're in a position to, they send ground strikes to Ukrainka, which is, you guessed it, the third rail link that Kyiv has going west. And if you close all three of those points, then Kyiv has a very difficult time being resupplied, especially since the state of Ukrainian roads is not one to be desired. As a result, uh, we should be expecting in the coming days uh, to be, have a lot more pressure being put on how the literal resupply of uh, donated European equipment is actually going to get to the front line because the other decisive points where the fighting is currently happening, places like you've already mentioned, like uh, Kharkiv and the Don Don Donbass front, the south, and now increasingly it appears that the Kherson front is going to break out towards Mykolaiv shortly, are even further a distance away from Europe, except for the Romanians, as I would say, uh, than Kiev is. And as such, uh, in the last couple of days, we've seen the DRG starting to get out there and specifically take out Ukrainian power lines. We have seen sorry, power stations. And explain, and explain uh, just DRG for those in our audience who don't know that. Correct. DRG, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly in Russian, but it's an acronym that stands for Sabotage and Reconnaissance Group. These are the forces that uh, typically are equipped out of intel units, but sometimes uh, just standard maneuver units that will put on Ukrainian uniforms and drive around to uh, mark out places to hit. So these are the saboteurs that you're seeing. So when you hear in the news that there are Russian soldiers inside of Kyiv, uh, it's not that they are conventional soldiers in a, on, along the front line. These are forces behind enemy lines attempting to uh, earmark places to hit and blow up soft targets in order to break the enemy's resistance. How much longer can they keep doing this, right? How long does this insurgency take? Does the government have to fall back to Lviv? Is Lviv even defensible, especially when uh, you have such uh, capability that Bel uh, Belarusians are going to pour into it? Talk to us a little bit about that dimension of the conflict, because that's the next uh, logical phase, right? Uh, you know, cause the fall of Kharkiv, cause the fall of Kiev, uh, and then, of course, the only thing you've got left is, is Lviv uh, that's in the eastern uh, part of the country. 
So over the weekend, the front was actually pretty stable in most places, uh, which was leading some, pe some people, especially in Central Europe, to be a bit optimistic that the Ukrainians might just pull this out. But as ammunition runs dry, we are really starting to see the line move, especially on the Donbass front. We heard earlier today that the uh, Russians breaking out northeast from Crimea have finally uh, ma managed to link up with their other forces in the Donetsk area, though. It doesn't seem that Mariupol, the city, has fallen just yet, so that may have changed again by the time you hear this. The difficulty is that if Kyiv needs to be evacuated, in addition to the fact that that is a huge strategic blow to morale that the Ukrainians are going to have for the conventional resistance, the area on the right bank of the Dnieper, out going west, pretty much out to uh, the Carpathian Mountains, is extremely open terrain. This is the area where in World War II, the offensives was moved, World War II and the Russian Civil War, offensives could gather up hundreds of kilometers as a result of a single tactical engagement. Uh, now, it's not like it's going to play out in just 24 hours specifically. Obviously, you need to continuously move if you're starting to break into that extremely open terrain. But it does mean that uh, the conventional means of defending the country really starts to become limited. Now, if the Ukrainians do withdraw to Lviv, the good news is that it's an extremely anti-Russian population out there. It's long been the center point of uh, European integration, even before 20, the 2014 uh, uprising and Euromaidan. But you are quite close to the Belarusian border, and we have seen reports of the Belarusian forces moving to the border, uh, getting ready to deploy. The good news is that the Belarusians don't have that many effective units. There's essentially two functional brigades and a couple of random battalions that could deploy. But there's also Russian forces that have been exercising at the uh, Polish border towns of Resch and Grodno that uh, by some accounts were moved south even at the beginning of the conflict, but have not crossed the border to this time, despite at least two false alarms that have been reported over the past week. So there is exposure to the north, but my suspicion, considering how we have not seen these forces cross the border yet, is that the Russians are more content to let the area around Lviv become a neutral buffer state following successful offensives in the east, where most of the strategic Soviet industry, as well as the most of the population is concentrated. Um, let me ask uh, one uh, last question uh, briefly, and that's on the nuclear question. Obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, loves rattling the nuclear saber. Uh, he's always liked to do that, whether leaking plans for the, you know, the canyon uh, uh, torpedo or any one of a number of other things, right? I mean, everything is, is bluster at this point. Western officials are saying there's no demonstrable change in the nation's nuclear posture. Otherwise, we would also climb the escalatory ladder. That would not be good for everybody. But at the, on the other hand, there is this sort of sense that Russian doctrine does is actually far more liberal in the use of nuclear weapons than we are, right? Escalate to de-escalate, detonate to get everybody's attention and force a de-escalation of a conflict. Indeed, there are some who are concerned that the reason uh, the Russians were so interested in taking the area around Chernobyl is it's already contaminated ground. It's not inhabited. Um, you know, maybe a, a test there with a low yield device would be good. Obviously, you could also do this in Central Asia or off at, at sea, you know, in the White Sea somewhere and do it. Um, you know, what's your sense on the nuclear dimension of this and what Russian doctrine tells us uh, about their comfort level uh, in doing this? Right. I mean, some argue the minute he does this, everybody around him is, is, is going to stop him. 
from executing that order uh, and would force them from office, that may be actually wishful thinking. He may want to do this to sort of, quote, wake everybody up uh, to how serious he is, especially at a time when the West really has pinned him down economically. Yes, it's an important question. I mean, obviously an important question. Um, I would say, to, to put it glibly, Russian nuclear doctrine is uh, deliberately sloppy, I would say, in as much as you could interpret it as uh, rather limited thresholds that it could be used. Or you could drive a bus through with the literal wording and say that just about anything could be interpreted as a threat to Russian state sovereignty. And that's the that's the motif of Russian nuclear doctrine. Putin says multiple has said multiple times over the years that Russia's strategic nuclear weapons are the guarantor of Russian sovereignty. And he has defined sovereignty as the ability to do whatever the heck I want to. So as a consequence, like, and we see this playing out. Like we the Russians are in Ukraine completely illegally. So it would seem perfectly logical for the United Nations or for NATO or for the European Union for that matter, to go in with its air force and start taking out these extremely vulnerable tank columns. And the only reason they're not doing that is really the possibility of nuclear escalation at this point. So we need to be concerned that uh, what precisely the Russians are going to be doing with these things. I do think that there's a serious chance that there will be a, an attempt to uh, do live fire tests in an exercise and say that this is somehow um, involved, somehow compatible with uh, the NPT, which of course is quite dubious and also goes against quite a lot of longstanding uh, Russian diplomatic initiatives as to uh, their support for the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, among other things. So. I suspect we should see some signaling relatively soon, but I also think that this is going to wait until the very last minute, because the, as soon as this becomes something that's actively being discussed, there is no walking back from it. Just in the, in the same way that the next time a nuclear weapon is used, which God forbid won't be anytime soon, um, it will be the third, only the third time it's ever been used and the first time since 1945 uh, in active combat. In the same way, if we start doing tests during a war, that's also going to be the first time that that has been done in real life, which is going to uh, have a shock value that rapidly depreciates. And that's something that Putin understands. So my expectation is that it's very likely that there will be some sort of Russian nuclear test very soon. Lukashenko actually forced Putin to admit that back in their meeting on December 29th, if I remember correctly, in 2021. But when this occurs, we should read this as a moment of great weakness coming out of Putin, as opposed to a moment of defiance and control of the situation. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds uh, left. I should point out to our audience that as we record this, a Russian missile, according to the BBC, uh, has hit the TV tower in the Ukrainian capital, killing five people, emergency services say. Uh, um, let me ask uh, in 30 seconds, uh, Nicholas, there's a perception by some this is a feint and that the Russians will move uh, elsewhere, you know, connecting with Kaliningrad, for example, right, distract everybody and do this. Uh, what are the prospects the Russians are going to move and act anywhere else, or is, is Ukraine really the focus of their military operations, because this is where the buildup has been. Well, a week ago, I would have said you were crazy to suggest that, but now we're in a world where I think that's actually more than 10% possible. Uh, the one that's most frequently cited is the possibility of moving into Moldova. I, I think 
there's not much to stop him doing that besides desire. The one thing that should be uh, making us feel slightly more comfortable is that Ukraine is a source of obsession in Russian planning. This is uh, very obvious both before and after 2014 that Ukraine has an extremely special place in how uh, Russian strategy makers at the larger Moscow policy community perceives the world because of all of the industrial codependence and cultural values attached to the, um, his, to the Slavic history of this, of this region. So we shouldn't be immediately assuming that everything is going to necessarily plow into the next war. But I also think that the odds of an attack against the Baltic states or even against Poland, where remember the armed forces readiness is a bit low because of all of the migrant border crossings over the past couple of months, exhausting everybody through border policing. Uh, we should expect that the odds of that are much higher than they have been in at least since the fall of the Soviet Union. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great conversation. Uh, look forward to welcoming you back on the program. And thanks so very much for your insights. Yeah, hopefully under better circumstances the next time. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.